Hey everybody, how's it going? Uh, as you can tell, it's another Skype episode. We haven't had one of those in a while, but you are listening to JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge, where we try to keep you connected to what's going on in Israel so that you don't feel quite so far away. I'm here, of course, as always, with my co-host, Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It's going pretty good. Yeah. You are working, I see, on Skype without a uh, headset, but you sound pretty good, so we'll go with that. Yeah. I don't like the, the headset. Okay. <laughs> you have headset willies? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, well, I, I do think the sound, I am wearing a headset, and it sounds pretty good, so hopefully uh, everyone agrees. How was your uh, Yom Hazikaron and Yom Hatzmaut? Uh, pretty good. You know, pretty powerful. It's really um, part of the rejuvenation of, of the Jewish people in our homeland that we have these new days that commemorate and celebrate. Well, the um, last time we added new days to the Jewish calendar, new positive days. Uh, positive days. Hanukkah. Hanukkah. You have to go to Hanukkah. So that's what, like 2,200 years ago? A little less, but not much less. So to live in an age where we once again can celebrate new positive days, I mean, that's really a tremendous turnaround in Jewish history. I mean, of course, this is the rise of the state of Israel is unique in human civilization. But just within the Jewish story, this is an amazing, amazing time. Uh, I was talking to some of my students today about how uh, the, in the diaspora, many people don't necessarily feel as connected to Yom Hazikaron and Yom Matzma'ut. Right. Which is natural, but it, it's it's really problematic. I mean, this is really an intense turning point moment that if you don't feel connected to, that's, a, I would say, a cause for concern. But I even say, even for Amer- I mean, I'm in America... It's not like I felt connected to really Memorial Day or July 4th in the way that I feel connected to uh, Yom Hazikaron and Yom Hatzmut. Well, Memorial Day in America, and you know, we're the 8 billionth person to point this out, is not really a Memorial Day. No, that's what I'm saying. So the Americans don't really... Fourth of July, you didn't feel... uh... It was nice. It was fun. There was like extra things going on, swim swim club or this and that, but it wasn't like... We go to fireworks and I had a whole playlist of American songs and I talked to my kids about the Constitution. Well, yeah, you, you know, you're. Uh, I mean, you know, like whatever. It was again. I wasn't a parent. I was a. I was a kid. Right. It, it was. I mean, my family was very patriotic, but I, I, it didn't feel like Yom Hatzmaut, which is like, you know. Well, it's a couple of things. You know, also, power. is that true for secular Israelis as well as religious Israelis? I, I, from what I see, I think so. I mean, secular Israelis really take it. You know. They take, they really celebrate with great joy, and they run around the street bumping each other in the and ceremonies, and, and you know the ceremonies. No, Yom Hazikaron, everybody connects. No, no I'm talking about Yom Hazikaron also. Maybe that's part of the reason why is the proximity of those two. The, the juxtaposition creates that that powerful energy. Yeah. No, I think also because I think also as secular Israelis, as much as any Israelis feel, we're, we're still fighting for the country. Yeah. I don't mean just for Yom Hazikaron. I mean for Yom Hatzmut also. It gives you a sense to uh, the need to appreciate still, I think. Because you still feel it's something under... Yeah, like America kind of took... I, at least I growing up, took it very much for granted. Maybe today less. But when I was growing up, America we took it totally for granted. It was like, you know... All right. Well, I'm glad you yeah. think Israelis... Uh, I hope you're right that Israelis aren't taking Israel for granted. Maybe they do more than they used to, but you, overall... 
you're saying, and I, I think I may even agree with you, that most Israelis take Israel less for granted than many people in other countries. Yeah. That Thank could you. be. Well, I would like to stay positive and talk about only these sorts of <laughs> positive things. And maybe we'll try to come back at the end to positive things. But with events going on this week, um, I, I think we should address the two major uh, goings-on in the world of Palestinian di diplomacy that are happening simultaneously. One of mm -hmm. them is uh, Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, meeting with President Trump in Washington. And the other is a new document released by Hamas. Uh, you, you want to talk a little bit about Abbas first? Uh, yeah, we can. I mean, it's kind of like... It, it's kind of expected almost. It's like the routine, you know. A new president comes in or a new term or a president's just about to leave and there's a new push on the Israeli-Palestinian front. So, of course, we know the first actually foreign diplomat to be invited to or foreign leader to be invited to the White House was, was Prime Minister Netanyahu. And interestingly enough, the day after, I think they probably had sensitivity enough not to do it on, on Yom Hatzmut, Independence Day. The day after Independence Day, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, or also known as Abu Mazen, the head of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, um, is meeting with uh, President Trump as we speak. Definitely more thoughtful than UNESCO, who purposely dissed <laughs> Israel right on Yom Hatzmut, which one would have to assume was on purpose, no? Yeah, of course. They're not dumb. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know. Um, uh, but yeah, so uh, again, there's a push. Uh, this president is making his push now on the Israeli-Palestinian front, um, which in and of itself is is a good question. Why is it that we see at the beginning of terms, at the end of terms? And, you know, why are presidents obsessed with this particular conflict? Yeah, why are presidents obsessed with this? Why is the why why? Um, uh, I think. Uh, I think part of it is has to do with the ability of uh, the Arab. I think it's I, it's a very good question. I mean, again, I, there's a certain right. Israel is Israel is a across the board. One can't deny the fact that Israel and and the United States are very very close allies. That that and both countries get a lot out of that relationship. Without saying, you know, of this, right? Right. So I think it, you know, it's probably a way, uh, you know, it's some, somewhat manipulated by a lot of the world that would like to, you know, you know, use it as a fire, like you keep a Bunsen burner or a fire burning under the United States, at least. Look, there used to be yeah. this idea, certainly within American diplomatic circles, that if you can just, you know, that's the Gordian knot. If you can crack the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you open up the Middle East. To a new age of, you know, cooperation and development and progress. Well, that's obviously not true. And I don't really think they really think diplomats ever really. Believe, I mean, they're not stupid people. Do you think they really ever believed yeah. that? Yeah. That was the key. Yeah. Yeah. If Israel is if Israel is the outpost of Western culture in the Middle East, then if you could get the Palestinians to make an accommodation with it, then that's going to diffuse the Arab discomfort with it. And it, it, it creates like this, this uh, uh, you know, slippery slope's the wrong term because that's usually used as a negative, but it creates this, uh, it nourishes this momentum of a new relationship with the, that was, I mean, I, I think people honestly believe that. 
So I, I do, and you think it was just, it was, I don't know, I kind of feel like it was just the, the, in a way, the Arab world, like manipulating the issue to keep the fire burning on the United States. I don't know. I'm not you don't think there's genuine thing. antipathy in the Arab world for Israel and Jews? No, I do. And I think they use this kind of like, if you'll just, you know, they use the Palestinian issue to keep the pressure on the United States. Well, well, do you know what I'm saying or am I saying it well? Did you say it again? Like the, the Arab world was like, who, who's pushing this idea if you just, you know, you have to solve the Palestinian problem, you know, it's, 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 you know, the Arab world is keeping the pressure up on that, isn't it? I mean, essentially. Well, but that's it. But that's why I think the, the paradigm was that if we can, if we can, if the Palestinians accept the situation and come to an accommodated, uh, comfortable existence, then that takes away the Arab world's lever of using Israel as an anti-Western tool. So now they have to. But, right, but I don't think. I guess what I'm saying is I don't think the Arab world ever really believed that. It was really never. They were just using it as a tool. Is what I'm saying. Oh, uh, I don't that, know if that's, that's true. It's well. So you have two things. You have the Arab leaders and the Arab street. The Arab street, you know, and there's data all over. Uh, you don't really need that much. All you have to do is look at Egyptian television. Yeah, tremendous antipathy, tremendous vilification of Jews and Israel. Be that as it may, I, I do think that was that was the the genuine idea. Um, I think Trump's trying to the the, the idea of uh, the Trump administration is to reverse it. That now that you if you can get the Sunni Arab world to accept Israel, then the Palestinians will have to. Right. And to a certain extent, the Sunni Arab world has been driven to the point of considering accepting and accommodating Israel because they felt so abandoned by America both through I would say through the incompetence of the previous two administrations through George Bush's overreach creating chaos in the Middle East and President Obama's uh, total lack of involvement in the Middle East and so the Sunni world felt totally uh, they, they did not feel America had their back against Iran and other forces so they're looking now around and they're seeing Israel as as the you know the best possible support. So I think the idea in at least in the Trump administration is how do we leverage that? So Trump's meeting with Abbas is within that context I would say probably a bit premature. No, if the idea of Trump is to leverage Saudi Arabia and the UAE etc on Abbas so this is a little bit weird. Not to mention the fact that how long is Abbas going to be the leader of the Palestinian people? Well, so on the other side too, I think that he, he, I think the other side also needs to be somewhat like they need to see that there's some kind of movement on the Palestinian issue. Right. I mean, the Saudi, I mean, they still are bought into this idea that they can't really make it, you know, they, they need that the Palestinians need uh, to no, I understand, but what I'm saying is it almost doesn't matter what Mahmoud Abbas says or does because people are just counting the days at this point. He's yeah, no, I, was, to, I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't relating to that. I think that you're right on that. But uh, he's a he's essentially a lame duck. He's but nobody knows how long. I mean, because the Palestinian politics is you know. Well, that's the beauty of having you know, you know no elections is you get to be there until right. you drop. I mean, so you don't, it's not like you know Obama's a two month lame duck. You know, from the you know here, it's uh. 
this is it, right? We don't know. It could be he could be running for another three years. Who knows? Could be, but he doesn't really seem to have real control of uh, in any sort of meaningful way. He's, in other words, he's not a strong enough leader to really control events. So whatever accommodation or deals you make with him. Which, I mean, which you could always be, I mean, but it can go back to all those priest deals that have never really come through, like the offers that Israel made go back to that same idea. He never really was a strong leader in that sense. And that's why with Abbas, it's more or less, is there anything more than running out the clock? But again, it's, it's, I think it's also, you know, it's, it's appearance and drama, right? Right. You know, like you have to show, you have to drama, and Trump is all about the drama, right? Well, I guess, I guess it's the form of the thing that there, there's something to that in diplomacy of going through the form of the things. But I don't think anyone reasonably expects anything really to come of this little meeting, right? Well, I think Hamas may. I mean, that's what's not of the meeting, but of the shifts. Again, the meeting is, you know, there's how many meetings are there ever going to be? What really came of the Tanyal's meeting? You know, I mean, there. Uh, it indicates shifts, maybe, in the way things are being discussed. Or, all right. Well, what's Hamas trying to do? So, what's Hamas trying to do? You want to know? Hamas I is, first. Yeah. Uh, so, well, okay, first of all, it, what did they do? They created well, this document. They didn't change their charter, but they created this it document. Like it, it seems like almost like a position paper. Is what I, it seems to me like. Like, you know what I mean? I mean, it's a really weird thing to do because it's like a, a white paper. This is like you know. <laughs> By creating a non-binding document that seems they've been working on for years now, which seems to be a little bit more, uh, what shall we call it? The idea is to put out a document that could be more acceptable to the mainstream so that Hamas can position itself to take over the Palestinian Authority, I would That's assume. What I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It seems like a position paper, you know. Uh, if they're saying, okay, we're at least in the, on, on stage one willing to talk about a state in 67 borders, you know, well, so we're not the document going to does arrest, say... but you know, uh, almost like, you know, almost like the, the Jewish response to the Peel commission. <laughs> well, I, I understand the Jewish in response a... to the Peel commission more. I think somewhat differently than you. In other words, they, their, their acceptance was genuine and had it gone through, they would have, I think, followed through. Yeah, yeah for sure. No, I'm just saying like, it's a practical thing. In other words, you know, Let's not worry about the future now. Let's worry about what we need now. Um, well, they hold but, on. so in their the, document, in this new document, which doesn't have, they haven't taken away their charter, which calls for eternal war against the Jewish people, which makes no difference between Zionists and Jews, which says, which calls for any form of violent uprising against the Zionist state. Their charter still, which hasn't changed says there is no solution but that every inch of Palestine be liberated and so there cannot be any Zionist entity here. This one doesn't change any of that but does say that there is a united Palestinian effort to create a Palestinian state within the 67 borders but with no land swaps. Right. And And the right of return. Well, the right of return, right. And the right of return. They they include the right of return in it. So it's... Right. So that's it sounds like they're aligning the position with the P, the the PA, making it like more of a street position, you could say. It's like those surveys that we've seen. Uh, yes, let's take the deal and but the struggle isn't over. Well, that's a, that's a whole other issue which is 
No, I'm saying that that's what this seems to be aligned with, this Hamas. Right. You, do you think that, but in, in, in taking away the Jewish language and talking about the problem being Zionism in this paper, don't you think that's for really outside consumption as well to get other nation states around the world to start viewing them a little bit more? Uh, they're, they're trying to sort of detoxify their image as a terrorist organization and trying well, seems- to present themselves as a mainstream position. Look, most of the most of the comment, you know, most of the people writing on it in English, at least, that's what they seem to be right uh, saying. And the 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 biggest the biggest, you know, um, uh, 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 novelty, novelty. Thank you. Sorry. The biggest novelty in this document or change in this document seems to be um, trying to sever or or get away from the connection with the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, that's that's presumed. That's, They're leaving out the connection to the Muslim Brotherhood so that they can reduce the tension with Egypt, with the Sisi government in Egypt. Right. Not only Egypt, but also in the world, because the Muslim Brotherhood, right, is is uh, is also generally in many places seen as a terrorist organization. I don't know when they when they uh, when uh, what's his name. When they ran Egypt for a year, right. So they were changing their image, but then they. Right. But nobody, nobody shed a tear when Sisi took uh, did his coup. Even America. <laughs> uh, yeah, America fetched a little, but didn't really condemn it. Did not shed a tear. Right. Um, and also, this is what's pushing. I mean, that's what's really been pushing the. Seems to also. There's a lot of internal. Palestinian How the Muslim politics. Brotherhood? The Muslim Brotherhood is an Egyptian. Uh, Sunni fundamentalist movement that's been trying to take over Egypt for decades and decades. No, Hamas was founded as a as basically as a Muslim reaction to the to the colonial takeover of the Middle East after World War One. Wait, the Muslim Brotherhood starts before the Egyptian army overthrows King Farouk. Nineteen twenties. Oh wow, I didn't realize it was that old. Pretty sure, I'm going to double check myself, but. Just okay. because, but as I do, we'll keep talking. Look, I think there's a lot of internal, internal um, Palestinian politics that we. By the way, that, is it true that I, Andrew so is it true that Andrew Jackson could have stopped the Muslim Brotherhood? <laughs> that we that like that nobody really pays attention to. That no, that is very little. Uh, 1928. Wow. I actually would have put it a little bit earlier in the early twenties, but twenty-eight. So. Um, but they, they uh, that we don't pay attention to the nuances and you know within the Palestinian world of their own internal politics. Well, we we look at everything they do. I think it's our natural tendency to look at everything they do as relating to us, and we right. have we have. It is difficult for us to see them as their own internal politics and processes and even though even though we and even though we see that there's a great divide i mean you have one group controlling gaza another group i'm talking political groups i was forgetting the, all the other terminology and another group controlling the west bank right there are currently essentially two palestinian yeah you know, fiefdoms they're not really states but quasi states i don't know what you want to call them Autonomy, whatever, whatever it is, they're being run by two completely different factions that not only have, you know, very bad blood, that actually now, and this could be the, 
is this is always a siman that things are happening is when there's great tension between them. You know, I think it's always a sign when there's great tension between them of things shifting and shifting on the ground. And there's great tension between them. Um, in fact, the Palestinian Authority, which pays Israel the electric bill for Hamas in Gaza, which which pays for, which 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 is about 30 percent of electricity in Gaza. It, it, the PA said they're stopping that payment of about $11 million, I think, a month. Is this the jockeying of position before so, the fall of Abbas? Is that what we're seeing, that Hamas is making its move and Fatah is making its moves? Uh, again, I don't know if we can you know, predict, but I definitely say, I don't, I don't know if we predict before fall or after fall, this or that, but it's certainly... I don't mean fall politically, I mean literally when he falls down and drops dead. Uh, I mean, uh, it could be again, but no, again, because nobody knows that we just, just this, this, con- this this tension that rises. I mean, that's what a lot of people don't really pay, didn't pay attention in Sukitan, which always kind of frustrates me that, that a lot of it was about inner Palestinian tension that, that, that was going on, political, political haranguing and tension, also tension with, with, with Egypt. Well, um, if you want to so, know why, I, I, I did an experiment with my students. I asked them. Uh, I forgot when the rocket was launched. I forgot which rocket launch it was, but periodically you get a rocket. And I asked around the classroom, why would you guess, why would you surmise they launched this rocket? Well, that's a great question. I never thought that's great. And of course they all talked about, you know, this Israel issue or that Israel issue. And I said, you know, behind the scenes, if you listen to what's going on in, in whatever media there is in the Palestinian world, it's an internal power play between two different groups in Gaza. Right. It has nothing to do with us. We're just the sort of uh, we're the we're the canvas that they're painting this political expression onto by right. launching a rocket at us. Right. I, I mean, it's it's, and then of course we we punish Hamas for it, which falls into that whole political game. Right. Meaning we hold them responsible because they're in control, and then you know hit a Hamas thing. I mean, I I was just reading as as incredible things, you know. Uh, Gaza has, I think it's something like six hours of electricity and then 12 hours with the L. Right. I mean, with electricity, we're talking the 21st century. Right. It's like North Korea. Because of these, you know, issues. Are, 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 they, still, are they still talking about Hudna? That, that, uh, that, I know Hamas was always talking about Hudna, yeah. which is like a ceasefire idea. That... Uh, that that they would be willing to accommodate temporarily that the, the right, but but um, I, I don't know if this document really talks about Hudna. I mean, I guess no, that's it doesn't. The I don't think idea. this document doesn't. I think they've moved away from that language. I don't know what that would mean. Is that more of a? Is that, I guess it leaves things to more to interpretation. They could be more moderate. Well, because when you say a Hudna, then you right. Well. They're trying to come up with two defining, things. They're trying to, without changing their principles, come up with a language that allows them to seem more mainstream. Right. And sort of close the gap. The Palestinian Authority, led by Fatah, has managed to uh, impress the world that they are essentially within the realm of normal political discourse, and Hamas is not. So Hamas is trying to enter into that world, and so they're trying to moderate their language. And what's funny is... Ultimately, uh, they won't recognize, obviously, a Jewish state, but of course, neither will Fatah. Right. Um, 
Let's go back for Hamas for a second. I mean, I haven't seen the. Have you seen in the commentary of there's been a discussion of the Arabic version that's come out? Because sometimes these things are have differences in languages. That I have not seen. Has it anybody pointed out? Because I wonder it, what's Was say. it put out as an English document and not a? As I don't know. That's what I'm asking. A little bit of. That I don't know. I thought it was a single document. It's a political document. That's what they're calling it. No, they must have put it. If they didn't put it out in Arabic, then that already says something. But if they put it out in Arabic, what are the language in Arabic? Right, sometimes it's different. Multiple languages. So what I'm saying. So sometimes there's discrepancies between languages. I'll tell you the truth. I think that was more of an issue in the '90s. I think they realized that the media is too sophisticated now. That yeah, memory, okay. memory, you know, M E M R I, which is that organization that translates what's in yeah. the media, will catch it. Oh, by the way, did they say anything on this? I didn't notice. Because uh, I get their updates. I didn't notice what they, they said. That's interesting. I could check right now while we're talking. Um, but uh, No, I'm not getting uh, No, they don't have anything. That's funny. I'm just trying because I'm going to wonder, like, what that that gets to, like, what is the purpose of this whole, you know, document? And what are they telling, you know, what are they telling their people? I mean, they're not going to, they're not going to, they're not going to get rid of the charter. They're not going to completely change the language in a charter. I mean, ultimately, they're a fundamentalist terrorist group <laughs> with political control. Well, they're not just a terrorist so. group. They, they definitely have a terrorist wing, but they have a political wing. They have a governmental wing. I mean, they are running things day in, day out. Right. Okay. So the argument over is Hamas a terrorist organization or not is not a helpful argument. No, I know. I, Part I, of I, what I, they do is terrorism, among other things that they do. <laughs> um, so I mean, look, again, you could call them a dictatorship or, uh, I don't know, what do you want to, you know, and... Well, they're a theocratic... The the theocracy, I suppose. Thugocracy, I don't know what you want to call Thugocracy, it. maybe, yeah. I, I, I'm just, you know... But they're not a nation-state, so... And look, the, the, the bigger problem is that Palestinian public opinion still has not... You know, Daniel Polisar, and I'll, I'll put a link to this when I, when I post the episode has written a follow-up to his original article about, you know, do Palestinians want a two-state solution? And he, he re-emphasizes his three main points about the majority of Palestinians on reliable opinion polls. The majority of Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza have for the past decade been opposed to the most generous package deal they are likely to be offered for a state alongside Israel. And, uh, and the most generous viable state that they could have that's one two when asked to choose among three options do you think the best future is israel and palestinian state living side by side a unified state with equal rights for palestinians and israelis or a palestinian state from the river to the sea palestinians the majority say we think that the just and right future is for a a palestinian state and when asked what ought to be done if Palestinian leaders make a two-state deal with Israel, most say that the the majority of Palestinians, two-thirds of Palestinians say, that that means that should be a temporary victory and then they should continue until all of Palestine is liberated. So 
again, I, I do think there is an enormous value and important at looking at things from within their world to understand them and their politics. I think that is not appropriately done in the West. I think if you look at where the Palestinian street is, meaning main, you know Main Street opinion, uh, and then think about what that means for us, it doesn't mean anything good. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, that's certainly a, uh, he has a bleak view on things, I think. Um, Oh, Polisar? He's actually cautiously optimistic. He said, look, a third is not a small amount. You have a third who have accommodated themselves to this idea and work can be done to take that critical mass and build it out. Polisar himself is not, I don't think he's, I think he's realistic. I don't, I wouldn't call him bleak. Yeah, I don't know. Somewhat I, optimistic. Yeah, I get a different sense. But uh, this this other, I don't know how to exactly pronounce his first name, but Al Omari. Yeah. Who wrote a response. Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I, he actually had, and again, Paulisar also responded to him, but he has actually pretty, uh, he, he has a pretty interesting take. He's someone who has been very involved from the Palestinian side on a two-state um, negotiations. Yeah, he's, an, he's a real advocate for the two-state solution. And he's an academic. And isn't his his basic claim, which I don't know if it's more positive or not, but I guess it doesn't matter, is you know that like with Egypt and Jordan, it, it, the street matters, but it doesn't need to necessarily be overemphasized. In other words, governments can make can make peace. You know, and what we generally talk about with Egypt and, and Jordan being a cold piece that's successful, that have been successful, um, even if the street, as we talked about earlier, still remains very, um, very anti-Jewish, anti-Israel. Well, uh, but that's a rough analogy because when you have very strong authoritarian governments in Jordan and Egypt and they make a decision and then the people are going to have to accommodate themselves to that reality, they don't have a choice. Palestinian well, leadership that, is not that strong, right? I mean that—that's I mean, sort of what's Palestine's critique. But the, but again, as, as we said before, Abbas is, is weak. But his his argument is is clearly you need strong leadership to do that. Um, uh, and clearly, I mean, I think we both agree, Abbas. I mean, not everybody would agree, Abbas is not the leader to do that. But in other words, I, I think it, it's 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 not taking the street with a grain of salt, but it is. It's putting it and saying it's not the it's not the it shouldn't be overemphasized either. I think was his point. You know what I mean? Well, everything is fluid, and you don't. There are there are many ways to skin the cat. But one thing you shouldn't do. By the way, I, I think it would be okay to advocate that Egyptian leadership should be working to change how Jews and Israel are talked about in Egypt. I think cultural work can be done there, and certainly in uh, Jordan as well. Certainly. Obviously, and I and I think any any, uh, you know, if Israel's allies take Israel's health in the region seriously, then that should be something that they put pressure on. We want to see on your television and your media better portrayals of Jews in Israel and shaping culture that way. They they have no interest in that Egypt or Jordan. I don't believe. Yeah, I don't I don't think so, but uh, but that change is going to have to come. Um, but let, but let's put all that aside for a second. What you know, what people think in Jordan, what people think in Egypt. What I what I like about the Polisar piece is 
you can assess how you want. You can you can analyze how you want. But here's our best realistic data about where we are. And I think that if you're talking about comparing, you know, if you're talking about making realistic change in the Middle East, then you have to be aware of what it is now. And sort of this sense that people in the West have that, well, most Israelis and Palestinians really want a two-state solution. That's not true. Would you say that that's not true on both sides? Well, mainstream Israel clearly supported the creation of a Palestinian state by voting and in an opinion polls. They're just skeptical since the second intifada that it could work. Whatever position you're on, the mainstream opinion in Israel was that that was the right solution. I'm saying, and now, but I think now most are, are doubtful that it's most are cynical right that it'll solution. work. But I think most still accept that. That, in other words, take Polisar's three points: Palestinians rejected the offers of a state, not only their leadership but the people. The people supported their leaders rejecting the state. That's one. Two. If given their druthers, the Palestinians said the right thing to do in the Middle East would be a one Palestinian state. And three, even if there was a two-state solution, that would just be a step on the way to liberating all of Palestine. That's All three of those are different than Main Street, Main Street Israeli opinion. Israelis think the Palestinians should have taken a state. They, I think the mainstream, I think it's fair to say, mainstream Israelis say... The proper, just thing to do would be two states. And they certainly would see the, sec- the two-state solution as the end of all conflict, which is how most people in the West would see it. Right. And the, the pal- like, I mean, even like our Palestinian speaker who comes, I want to say his name because he prefers not, but, you know. See, that's yeah, I really all wish we could interview him for the podcast. Yeah. Say it's because of, uh, it's, all, it's all positive for Israel. Israel's the upper hand, whatever Right. Um, so that's why Israel wants it. Uh, it that's so where do we go with all this? Where do we go with all this? Well, I, I asked you first. Uh, I don't know that we go anywhere with all this, except that we have to be able... Look, I, 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 I think... Here, here's what's going on. Our ability to explain the situation is hampered by the fact that we learn through analogy. It's one of the quickest things to say to get somebody to comprehend what you're saying is, you know what that's like? And I'll give you an analogy, and that will be helpful to you to understand it. The state of Israel is sui generis. There has never been a nation that has survived exile. At the end of the of thousands of years of that survival, comes back and rebuilds their nation state, which becomes a powerhouse superpower in the region of the world. There is no, nothing analogous to this. And so people are having trouble understanding it, including Jews. And when people look at it, they say, well, what does it look kind of like? It looks kind of like when the colonialist Europeans came and took over land from brown people. And so that's how it's being treated and discussed. That certainly seems to be how the Palestinian mainstream sees it. That seems to be how most Arabs see this. Israel is one of the... And by the way, Hamas has not changed that from their documentation. Right? Hamas, with their new political document, has not still considers Zionism 
one of the last bastions of colonialism. Although colonialism has fallen all around the world, one of the last refuges of colonialism is, is as the Zionist entity. They don't like to use the word Israel. But back to your analogy you're losing, because that's the... There, there, the, the, the analogy that... Once you make an analogy that's false, in other words, it's similar a little bit. It's similar enough to distort. You know what it's a little bit like? And now I'm making an analogy to make my point. It's a little bit like the students, students sometimes complain. They'll go like, oh, going on those Shabbatones or those programs, that's like a cult. They'll make an analogy that this Shabbaton, well, we all put our arms around each other and we sing songs. and it's, Well, that's true, but we're also feeding you protein and letting you sleep. <laughs> and you can go to the bathroom without people watching you. So it's not exactly like a cult. In other <laughs> words, it's the fact that we get together and do things you can say is cult-like. But it's really not a fair analogy. In fact, that analogy is really distorting more than it's explaining. And so that colonialist analogy is hampering the ability for us to have the conversation here. And it is, I would argue, the issue that the Palestinian street and, and the Arab mainstream, and it's the problem throughout much of the West and university campuses, is this false analogy. That if you see us as a colonialist enterprise, then there's absolutely no reason to make an accommodation with us because colonialism falls. If you see us as an indigenous people returning home, then A, you should embrace us as fellow Semites. And you can, we can work together to make the Middle East a better place to live. And certainly your strategy of political activity, uh, launching rockets every now and then, is not going to dissuade an indigenous people from leaving their homeland. Hmm. That's what I think. So, with that, give us a positive. Well, the positive is that although although the Palestinian, and this is also showing up on all these Palestinian opinion polls, the honest-to-God belief of most Palestinians, and most Arabs, is that Israel will disappear within the next 10 to 20 years. That we have the shelf life of, you know, five to 20 years, and then they'll move on to the next stage, and it'll all be over. More realistic assessments are that maybe we'll make it a few more decades. But obviously, they're wrong. And the reason that they're wrong, and you and I are, as people who've moved here, I mean, we're literally betting the lives of our children and grandchildren that we're right, and that this won't end in some horrible, God forbid. But if you look around, it is because... Look, what are the numbers? I, I always bring this one up. In 48, 600,000 Jews in Israel, under 6 million Jews in America. In 2017, under 6 million Jews in America, over, over 6 million Jews in Israel. Yeah. What are the projections of the net? When will is, Israel now is the most populated Jewish country in the world? The projections are 40, within the next few decades. We are 43% of world Jews are here. We are 43% of world Jews, and at a certain point within the next few decades, we'll take the majority, and that majority is just going to grow. Yeah. Which will bring other problems, like Shemitah. Okay. (laughs) That's the kind of problems we've been waiting thousands of years for. Yeah. History, they are arguing, you know, to me, the Palestinian argument is like Khrushchev slamming his shoe on the rostrum at the UN. 
and saying to the United States, we will bury you. Because communism mm-hmm. is, the, is, 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 the, is the way of history. And you right. capitalists in the West are fighting against the flow of history. Marx said you will fail. And we will bury you. That to me is what's going on here. They are telling us that we're fighting against history. When in fact, history continuously proves us right. Not only are we basing ourselves on a, on a realistic assessment of our history and our place here, but we've put down roots and we've built something, which is an astonishing success by, by pretty much any measurement you would like. Yes, we have a long way to go. And that work that lies ahead of us should excite every Jew who cares about the Jewish future to be able to join into that mission and build what will be an even more glorious future for the state of Israel. They're playing the wrong game. They're using the strategy from a different game with us. People say, oh, you know, the Palestinians have a plan. They have a, you know, they have a, they have an end game in their chess game. And the Israelis are only playing checkers. They're not even playing chess against them. I, I've heard that. Really? I've never heard that. That's... Yeah, I think that was a Sharanskyism. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Palestinians are playing chess. They know their end game, and they're working backwards from there. They want the whole country. What's our end game? We don't even know. Two states, one state. We don't have an end game. We can't agree on an end game. How are we supposed to defeat them? And I, I understand that analysis, that strategic analysis. But the bottom line is, to a certain extent, they're fighting the wrong fight. They're fighting. This is the playbook of how you get the British out of Palestine. They're using. You know, the Vietnamese playbook, how to get the Americans, the Viet Cong playbook, how to get Americans out of Vietnam. Oh, because they're still calling it colonialism. It's, but we're not. Right. And so they're fighting a phantom enemy. Now, we just spent Yom Zikaron acknowledging the price of their fighting that phantom enemy. But the real thing that is Israel, the real Israel, is not vulnerable to those tactics. Right. Now we just have to get out there and convince more people that that's what's going on. <laughs> so listen to the podcast and that's share right. it with your friends. <laughs> uh, yeah, please share it with your friends. Pass it around. Uh, we are, again, always uh, very gratified by how many people are listening to it. But uh, we do think uh, that's an indication that it might be helpful for people. In particular, I would say if you're advising somebody uh, to jump in, uh, number episode twenty four seems to be one that uh, is a good entry level. So if you can tell people to jump in at episode twenty four, I think that might be a good. Great. Yeah. Great. All right. All right. All, All right. right. Thanks so much, Alan. Thanks, Mike. Bye bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. But you knew that, right? Uh, you can follow our Facebook page at the Teacher's Lounge podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at JU Israel Gap. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions. And... 
If you know somebody who would enjoy our podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys.